a couple of things before we get started. I hope you enjoyed our, our service so far. Just a couple of reminders uh, to some of our people. If you're a member here at Grace, there's the ballots for our next year's budget and all that. That has to be approved by you. And that's right there at our information table. If you want to grab one of those, thought I had an example, but I don't. But just grab one of those. There's a little tear out, a little ballot box right there, just approving our budget and stuff like that. And uh, a lot of that, you know, what we're doing, th this is all you. As you can see, the uh, construction is continuing. We're hoping by the end of January, could happen. By the end of January, we're in that facility. Got some exciting things planned. Some things for upward basketball and stuff. We actually have a, a group coming in called Soar Dunk. It's just amazing stuff that we're hoping to do in that facility uh, toward the end of upward basketball. So, so that's going. Speaking of upward, still could use some coaches. And so if that's something, if you know basketball or if you've even watched basketball once on TV, <laughs> then that will work. So uh, you can check in with the children's people and they'll, they'll sign you up or even to be a, an assistant. Actually, we're going to hear from a couple of our, our coaches from last year right here, their story. So as I say, we're, we're very excited about that, and hopefully we'll be in, in the new facility before Upward Ends. We'll start uh, where we've been doing it. And, and by the way, for you, second service, when you're leaving, remember, kind of flow, counterclockwise. You're all looking at me like you've never heard this before. <laughs> Are you with me? You know what I'm going to say, right? Counterclockwise, through the construction area, it's all paved now. You probably won't even get a flat. No, you won't. It, it's good. Just go right through there. And that will maybe save some lives over in the park. You know, that's what I'm talking about. So be nice to the people in the park. That's who we're trying to reach. And so keep that, keep that in mind. We're going to start, we're going to wrap up Shadow Mission today. And then we're going to start on our Christmas series next Sunday. So great time to invite somebody. Uh, it starts next Sunday the 13th. That would be a great day. The next Sunday after that is the 20th. The service on the 20th just... That's a Sunday, two weeks from today, just our normal three services. It will be very similar to the service on the 24th. And so we're advising you to come to church on the 20th like normal and then bring somebody back on Christmas Eve. Or if there's no, no one will come with you to come back on Christmas Eve, we would like you to come back and maybe serve in one of our two services that evening. So think about how God can use you to do that. We want to make a big impact on our community. I don't know if you remember, but last year we had about 3,400 people come to that, that service. So we're really excited about what God's doing there. So keep that, keep that in mind. Last several weeks we've been talking about shadow mission. And this is where we get kind of caught up in, in sort of going through our lives 
and just doing our routine rather than seeing the deeper mission that God has given us, the purpose for our lives. And actually, there's a passage of Scripture that has everything to do with Christmas that I think illustrates this whole shadow mission mentality, and that's what I want us to look at today, and it's in Matthew chapter 2. So we're kind of combining here at shadow mission, but we're bringing in the Christmas story before we launch into our Christmas series. So here it is, Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying... Now, through this story, I want you to see if you could pick out this shadow mission issue. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem. Of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, And search carefully for the child, and when you found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. And after hearing the king, they went their way. And the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell to the ground, and they worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. So, this is a story where we see people on mission and people in their shadow mission. And first of all, I want to point out some of these people, but the first is the Magi. And answer just a few questions about these different groups of people. First of all, the Magi, who were they? Well, we know they were from the east. They're called the Magi. People refer to them as the wise men. And they traveled from the east, which was the land of Persia, where the Parthians were. We're not sure exactly where, but probably Persia, modern-day Iran. And they came searching for the Messiah that was to be born, which is kind of incredible Because these men would have been from kind of a pagan nation. And here they show up and they're searching for a king. But it may be because a lot of what we know about the wise men has to do from Daniel. Because if you'll remember when Israel was conquered and then Daniel was taken captive into Babylon. He rose in the Babylon Empire and then later in the Medo-Persian Empire... He became very, a very high-ranking official, and he was actually the head of the Magi, or the head of the wise men. Daniel was. And so these men probably have the writings of Daniel, the book of Daniel, which has a lot to say about the coming of the Messiah and him being a world king. And they may have some of the other Old Testament writings. We don't know. Maybe some of the other prophets. 
But something happens in the sky that God uses to prompt them to make them think that this, this world leader, this new king had been born. And people speculate, because we don't know exactly what that star in the east was. Some people actually think it was, because star there is kind of a broad word that was also used for light and some other things. Some people think that was a Jupiter and Saturn kind of aligning in Pisces, which would say several things to them. Jupiter, a king uh, from Saturn, the land of Judah, would bring peace to the world. And so we don't know exactly what it is, but they realize that something of significance has happened, and so they do something about it. They actually travel from Persia. It's about 900 miles, eight to 900 miles. It's 500 as the crow flies, but there's a desert that's kind of impassable. And so they use the Fertile Crescent. They come around from Persia, and it's, it's maybe 900-mile trip. And I know that tradition says there were three of them, and they, they came on camels. We, we really don't know how many. Uh, it, I think the tradition of three came from the fact that they brought three types of gifts, but we know, we know that there were several of them, and probably more than three, and that they would have had a whole entourage. Think about it. These are high government officials. So you have this whole tradition kind of ascribing to them as kings. They're actually like king makers. They were, they were sort of a, a high officials of this previously world-dominating empire. And they came and they brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. They had treasures with them. So they would have come, don't know how many wise men, but they would have had a bunch of servants cooking their meals, taking care of all their needs. They would have had a, some sort of an honor guard from the military uh, with them. They probably, you know, and, and so this whole caravan shows up. And they only know Judea, so they show up in Israel. And they don't know exactly where, so the natural thing for them to do is go straight to Jerusalem, the capital city, and they start act, asking around, hey, where's the, where's the newborn king? And they're probably surprised at the reaction they're getting because they get nothing. People are just kind of, what? what? What are you talking about? And so, but these men are so important, and we can tell how important they are because they come in to Jerusalem unannounced, and they have an audience with King Herod. Could, could you imagine any of us going to Washington, D.C. unannounced and then getting an audience with the president? Not going to happen, right? Announced or unannounced. I mean, it's just not going not to happen. Well, that just shows you kind of that these people were very important people. And no doubt they caused quite a stir. There's a military presence with them. You know, there's the, these the kind of these kingmaker attitudes. And as they show up, people are buzzing. They're asking around. They get this audience with the king. And so they meet with Herod. And then they ask him that very thing. They say, hey... Where's the king? We know this king was born because of this, this, uh, this celestial sign. And so we're looking for him to pay homage to him, to worship him. And, uh, and there's kind of a common misconception that these wise men showed up at the stable at, right on the night of Jesus' birth. Probably didn't happen. This is probably months later. They probably saw the celestial sign at his birth. And this could be eight, nine, ten months later that they actually show up in Jerusalem. And then we know that because 
when they, when they eventually are instructed to go to Bethlehem, they see a miraculous sign from God, a light or a star that shows them the exact house that now Jesus and Mary and Joseph are living in. We wouldn't expect them to continue staying in a, in a stable. So that's, that's what happens. And so they show up, they worship him. And uh, the amazing thing about it is here are these men from a pagan nation. Somehow through this Christmas event, the birth of Christ, they get on mission. They get it. They seem to have this sense that something big happened. So big that they need to come and, and pay homage or come and worship him. Something has changed in the world. Something world altering, history altering has happened. Something bigger than them or their lives or their nation. And so they make this journey to pay homage to the newborn king. And, and really it's, it's the same way with us. Especially at Christmas time, but really all the time in our lives. And that's what we've been talking about for the last several weeks. That we can kind of go through the motions of our life and we can start thinking that, hey, this is our mission. Just kind of doing the typical things we do. You know, raise a family, go to work. That that's all there is to it. But what we've been discovering over the last several weeks is God's given us a deeper mission and it's to impact people for Christ primarily. It's to worship God and enjoy him forever. I mean, that's, that's what we should be all about. And every true believer should, should understand that and seek to, to not kind of waste their lives in shadow mission all the time, but to become the true mission of God. Since we've been in this series, I actually met with a couple that goes to our church, and they have a cool story about how they feel God gave them a mission in their life. This just happened a, a few, it's happening right now, but a few weeks ago, I want you to hear their story. This is Aaron and George Morgan. Hi, we're the Morgans. I'm George, this is my wife, Aaron. We have six children. We've been coming to Grace for about the past six years. I became a believer when I was nine years old and I got baptized at Baptist Church in Tiffin. After attending Grace for a couple years, I really felt the Holy Spirit call me to recommit myself to Him, and I was re-baptized here at Grace Community Church. And I also committed my life to Christ before coming to Grace, and hearing the Word of God preached really convicted us to bring our family into the church. Our family was growing, so we decided that we wanted to be closer to Grace. We put our, mar our house on the market, and that's what we wanted to do. We're like, we're gonna move, we're gonna move close to Grace. We're gonna be closer to our family, our church family. Our house didn't sell, and then out of the clear blue, someone decided they wanted to buy our house, and we were kind of scram scrambling to look for a house. A house came up for sale in Bloomville that fit our family, so we moved out there, kind of like we just moved farther away from the church where we wanted to be. And it was the perfect house for us. However, we were farther from our church family. At the time, we kind of felt like maybe God was calling us to get, get connected with a smaller church there in the community. But um, that really wasn't a good fit for our family. So one day we were watching at home online and because we had some sick kiddos, so we couldn't make it up to Grace that day. And after the service, we just really, we started talking that we, we need to figure out how to get Grace out here to Bloomfield. We actually, uh, we actually packed the kids up and we went for a little walk right downtown and there was, there was an old storefront that was for sale there and we made contact with the, with the owner and we went, we, we looked at the building, we're like, I really think that we could make this work to 
make this accommodating for people from the community to come in and for us to stream services here and to bring the messages from the pastors here and from the Grace family and just bring them out to Bloomville and, and help spread God's word that way. So that's what we're doing. We are buying the building. We're gonna be closing on it soon. God's gonna work in the situation. We're hoping that there will be a thriving Christian community in Bloomville and maybe this is the way that he's gonna work that out. God works in our lives every single day and we just need to pray and we need to stay focused on what God wants us to do and listen to his prayers and when we feel that he's calling us to do something, we just need to focus in on that mission and do it. I don't know if, if George and Aaron are in here, are you? If you're in here, stand up. Are you in here this service? Up oh, right over here. Yeah, good job. Wow. You guys have guts. All right, that's gutsy. Uh, I, I didn't know George or Aaron very well, and I had an appointment with them several weeks ago. And they came in, and they just kind of presented this whole thing. It's just kind of a, it, it's just the kind of story God would do. I mean, hey, uh, big family, six kids. Grace is an important part of our lives. We kind of have some flexibility. We're going to move from Tiffin or wherever closer to Grace. And then things kind of slow down. House doesn't sell. And then all of a sudden, bam, it does sell. And they're scrambling for a place, running out of time. They end up in Bloomville and realize we're further from Grace than we were when we started. And then God puts this on their heart. They, they, start, they start noticing things in their community. Uh, they, they checked out. Uh, there's a couple of small churches there. But anyway, they, they check things out and decide, hey, we can make a difference here. Decided to buy a storefront in downtown Bloomville. Huge. Okay. And, um, and they're going to they're gonna go in there. They're gonna, it's going to require some work. They're going to fix it up. They want to maybe do a little community center kind of a thing where, uh, where the community could come. And then they, they came in to ask me, hey, Kevin, is it okay if we stream in Grace's services on Sunday morning? And just, it's just go, I don't know how this is going to turn out, and I don't know that they do either. But uh, we said, wow, we, we want to help you with that, and we're excited about it, and just a cool, cool story. Actually, after the first service, I had somebody come to me and say, hey, can we help them financially to make this happen? They did all this totally on their own. I mean, it's gutsy. They bought a building, you know, and uh, it's just neat to see how God's coming together, make that happen. And really, it's the same with all of us. We get that, right? No matter where we are, God's put us there for a reason, and just like the Morgans, it's up for us to figure out, well, why, why are we here? What does God want me to do here? And really search and, and try to make that happen, because we know he wants us to impact people. It's really more about how can we do that? How can we honor God with our lives? Same thing as the wise men. The last thing I want you to notice about them is their, their joy. Uh, earlier in the text, I can't remember the phrase exactly, but it says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. What that, that awkward wording there, that's just a bunch of superlatives piled up on each other in the Greek. And it's basically just emphasizing the joy that they had. Imagine they ride in, they're kind of shocked. Nobody knows about this. Nobody knows about the king. What's going on here? They get directions. They leave Jerusalem. It's just a short distance, hour and a half. And on their way, the star shows back up or the light supernaturally revealing the place. And they are stoked. They are pumped. 
because they're on mission for God and they're experiencing the exhilaration and the joy of doing that. And then the, they, they show there, they worship Jesus, they, they give Jesus gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We know later from the story that, that they're warned not to return to Herod, to go back to their own country a different way, and that also Mary and Joseph are warned and they flee to Egypt because that's then uh, where Herod came in knowing this, and the Magi didn't come back to him, and he goes into Bethlehem and slaughters babies two years old, all the male children two years old and under. And, uh, and Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt, and it's probably those gifts that finance them as they're in Egypt and, until King Herod dies, and then they return to Israel. So that's how all that kind of happened. The thing about it is that first Christmas is that the majority of people in Israel did not respond like the Magi did, right? It's a cool story with the Magi, and they're kind of interesting people, and we're trying to figure out all that stuff about them. But to me, what's the most amazing part of the story are the other characters in it. We can write Herod off. You know, he's a king. He's threatened. I mean, he's the king of the Jews. That was a title that was given to him by Caesar. And so he's riding high on that. And all of a sudden, these people showing up. Where's the true king of Jews? And he's a little bit, uh, he's, his position is a little dicey. He knows he's, he's not fully Jewish. He wasn't really a king by birth. He was actually be, been appointed there by Caesar, which is kind of an enemy of Israel. So he, his position is a little tenuous, although uh, he ruled with an iron fist. And so we get him. He rejects the whole idea, and he's out to destroy this new king. But what surprises me the most are the other characters, the the chief priests and the scribes. Chief priests were the people who ministered in the temple, and then the scribes was a huge group of people who who later were the rabbis, but they were a huge group of people who, who were experts in the law. They were called lawyers. They were experts in the Old Testament. Because that's the Bible they had at that point at the birth of Jesus. And these guys knew it front to back. And if you could imagine, you know, this group of people, they were the ones that were to teach Israel how to apply the law and the Old Testament to their lives. So they knew everything about that. What's amazing is the way they respond. This, it's really kind of shocking. Think about it. They're so casual. It's like Herod's meeting with these wise men, and he realized they're asking a theological question that he can't answer. So he calls for the chief priests and the scribes, and it's like they walk in like this. Yeah, king, what can I do for you? Oh, oh yeah, the Messiah. Oh yeah. Yeah, we, we know where he's supposed to be born. Uh, the prophets tell us that. It's, uh, it's right there in Micah, Micah 5.2, right? Micah 5.2, yeah, Micah 5.2, yeah. Tells you everything about it. I, I could see why you missed it. I mean, Micah, it's a little bitty book. It's only seven chapters. It's tucked in toward the end. But uh, the prophet tells us that the Messiah, he's going to be born in uh, Bethlehem. Bethlehem of Judea, there's a couple of those. The one real close to us. So... If you're looking for him, 
then that's just like six miles east. So, uh, uh, Wiseman, yeah, if you just go six miles straight east, you can't miss it. There he is. So, yeah, that, that's all you need? Okay, yeah. I mean, it's like they're totally indifferent. Think about it. These guys are the experts in the law. The whole nation of Israel have been waiting for the Messiah for hundreds of years, for generations. They also have the book of Daniel. They have the whole law. And they know Daniel chapter 9 has a timeline about basically when the Messiah was, would show up. And we're in that time. We're in the lifespan right now. And then these foreign dignitaries show up and they say, he's been born. Where is he? And these guys are like, yeah, well, uh, Bethlehem. Got to go check that out. And the amazing thing is these Magi have traveled 900 miles by foot or horseback or camel. But the Messiah is born six miles. I mean, the scribes could walk there and back before lunch if it was in the morning. It's just, it's an hour and a half by a walk away. And they don't do anything. That's what's stunning, I think, about the story. It's like they know, they, they display biblical knowledge. Oh, yeah. What? Prophet Michael. Micah, 5-2. Yeah, he's right in there. Yeah, plain as day. Anybody can know that. But they don't act on what they know from the Bible. Yeah, go check it out. Now, the question is, Why? Why didn't the scribes get jazzed up? I mean, when he's saying this, uh, Bethlehem, yeah, six miles east, can't miss it. I bet the Magi, they're wiggling, you know, in their seats. I bet they're like, oh, we, we, we've, been traveling nine, we've been traveling for months. And now we're going to see the Messiah this morning. We're going to see this Christ child, which is another name for Messiah. We're, we're, we're going to see the king who's been born. So why, why so indifferent? Why the scribes not seem to give a rip? Well, I, I can only think of a couple of reasons. Number one, they may be afraid of Herod. Herod's kind of a wacko. And so, you know, he kills people. He kills his own family. So they're like, whoa, don't want to line up against him. But even if that was the case, you'd think some of them, and there's a lot of scribes, some of them would go secretly check into it. It's the, it's the rightful king that's been born. That they would go check that out. I think it might be something else. Maybe they were okay with how everything was. Maybe they just thought everything's okay and they weren't feeling the need for their Messiah. I mean, they're scribes. They have positions. They, the king asks them theological questions. And everything's kind of comfortable for them. I think they thought they were okay with God. The reason I think that that may be it is because it's human nature. A lot of us talk to people about God quite often. And, and if you do that, you'll notice at some point in the conversation, once you get past that God exists, which sometimes takes a while, sometimes people are okay with that. So once you get beyond 
God exists, then the next thing is, how are you with God? If there is a God and he exists, if we get that far, then the next question is, how do you think you're doing with God? And so we have a question that we ask people a lot. And it's just a way to cut to the chase. You can say, you know, how you think you're doing with God. But sometimes a way to just sharpen that focus is we ask a question that goes like this. If you were to die tonight and you found yourself standing before the gates of heaven and you're talking to God or an angel or whoever and they say, why should I let you into heaven? What's your answer? What would you say? That's not going to happen. But just so we can, for the conversation's sake, how would you answer that question? And when you, when you put it like that, about 80% of the people you ask, even people who claim to be Christians, typically answer it this way. Well, I've tried to be a pretty good person my whole life. I'm, you know, I, I, I pay my taxes. I, and then they start going into a whole list of things. I pray, I read my Bible, I, you know, I'm a good dad or I'm a good mom. And, and it's just a list of stuff. You see, when you do that, that's human nature. As a matter of fact, that's the shadow Christmas that we see all around us all the time. That's the naughty and nice list, right? People answer and it's like, well, yeah, I've done some naughty things, but look at all the stuff that I've tried to be good. I've tried to do the right thing. And they answer as if it all swings on their naughty or nice list, and if the nice is bigger, then they're okay. That's completely foreign to the Bible. It's completely exactly turned around. And, and someday, you know, we'll have to rate the, the sermon PG or something, but, you know, we, we probably should talk about the competing traditions. Because it's, it's the, the exact opposite of the way it should be. You see, when you approach God through human nature, there are winners and losers. And no doubt the scribes and the chief priests, I mean, they're thinking, wow, if anybody is okay with God, anybody, well, then it's us. We're at the top of the list. Now, you magi, you guys are in trouble. Astrologers, astronomers, you know, I don't know what's going on. We're not, the Bible says don't even mess with that stuff. But they thought they were good. Actually, Jesus had an interaction and told a story that illustrates this concept. It's the story about where Jesus was invited to a Pharisee's house named Simon. Here's what I want you to know, and there were other Pharisees. And Pharisees and scribes are mostly the same people. There were a few Pharisees that weren't actually scribes, but most Pharisees were scribes, and this is basically the Pharisees and the scribes are kind of described as one group of people. So do you remember this from Luke chapter 7? Let me read how that went. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, talking to Jesus. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner... And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. 
and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him and that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see, Simon thinks he's a pretty good person. He's a Pharisee. He does all the stuff. And this woman is not a good person. She's probably a prostitute. And he is just scandalized by this whole interaction. But Simon missed something in, in the story where Jesus was trying to tell him. I think Jesus tried to teach Simon something and, and Simon didn't get it. And here, here's what it is. Both the, the people who owed money in the story, both were debtors. Not just one, both. One owed 500 denarii, one owed 50. But even the one that owned 50 owed and, and here, here's the problem with that. If we are standing next to someone who sinned 10 times more than we've sinned, I mean, we can just see it. it, it makes us feel like our sin, not that big a deal. But that's not what Jesus is teaching us here. You see, when we're around, when we're comparing ourselves that sin 10 times as much, we start thinking that we're okay. And really, when it comes to being a sinner, well, not so much, not compared to this other person. Makes our sin something we don't really worry about. Why? Why would they stay put in Jerusalem when their one true king 
is reportedly just six miles away. I think it's because they felt pretty good about themselves. They liked the system they had. I think the scribes would feel real comfortable in the shadow Christmas that so many people in our culture today celebrate. Uh, Pam and I went shopping yesterday and, and we were on a drive listening to the radio. We were listening to Christmas. There's a station that only plays Christmas songs. And I was, you know, I, I don't mean to be a Scrooge, so, you know, but I'm just noticing that, you know, we listen to like 15 songs. Never did I hear Jesus, God, redemption, you know, nothing about the true meaning of a Christmas. I heard a lot about winter, hot chocolate, chestnuts, uh, deer who fly. You know, it's just kind of, it's kind of nuts when you, when you think about it. It's a shadow Christmas. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not down in your traditions. Or, you know, I'm not saying you can't enjoy Rudolph or chestnuts or whatever. That's really not my point. My point is that's the emphasis. And gifts. And family. And food. Hot chocolate, pumpkin pie. You know, whatever. That's shadow Christmas. And I think the people who feel most comfortable celebrating Christmas that way are the people who, who think they're pretty much okay with God. And their life is comfortable in that thought. And so Christmas is just a, another celebration. It's a cool holiday where we do things for others, hopefully, because we're always getting something back. So I don't know. Well, that's what we do. Where true Christians, Christmas runs way deeper. Because if you're a true believer, you have this knowledge, this sense that that's true. That you are desperate for a savior. Because it doesn't matter how big your naughty list or good list is, nice or naughty. The point is, you have bad things sin in your life and no amount of nice things fixes that that we are desperate for forgiveness and God knows us and loves us so much he allowed his son to come and pay our sin penalty on the cross and now Christmas takes a whole new meaning it's the coming of our Savior. We, we have no other way to be made right with God. He, he came to rescue us, to redeem us, to forgive us, to give us life, meaning, purpose. That's what, that's what Christmas means. And if you're a Christian, you should be on mission to joyfully experience the true meaning of Christmas. That's when we can pile on the superlatives, not because the pumpkin pie is so good, but because of the greatest gift in the universe has been offered to us without us deserving it.
and we can experience forgiveness from God. And Jesus Christ absorbs the penalty for our sin. That's, that's what Christmas is really all about. Let's make sure we keep the true mission in mind during this holiday season, okay? Doesn't mean you can't have hot chocolate or even sing about a flying reindeer. I mean, whatever. But just know that, wow, there's a true meaning here. Let's not miss that. And that's what everyone needs to know. And that's our mission to teach them that. And so that's why we do all these, the things we do, upward. Or the you've been gifted cards. It's just a little, that's what it says on the card. Hey, things are busy. Everybody's busy, but just uh, just a little token. A gift, a, a little bit of grace. A random act of generosity that will not be reciprocated. To remind you there's a God that loves you and this is what he's done for all of us. And when you do that, again, I'd like to hear your stories. Let's keep Christ first in Christmas. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we thank you for what Christmas means to us, especially those of us who believe. Lord, we know as every Sunday there are people here that have not embraced you as Savior and Father, we pray that they would and that they would come back and find out more about you and your son. Lord, help us to not just have biblical knowledge about Christmas. The the scribes had that. Help us to have that biblical knowledge and put it into practice in our lives. Help us to live it this Christmas. And help us to be on mission to impact the world around us. God, we thank you for loving us like you've loved us. In Christ's name. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here. Hope you come back next time. If you want to find out more, you have some questions about having a relationship with Christ, we'll meet you in room one right now. I'll be there in a few minutes. The other pastors are there now. Merry Christmas.